Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 244th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Denise, we are going to a state that we have not been to yet. In all of our episodes, we have not visited North Dakota. Oh, wow. So this will be interesting. It'll be a lot of fun. The location that we're going to be featuring is Bonanzaville, and this was suggested to us by our listener, Tiffany Schaefer, and I thanked her a lot for that because I'm like, we haven't had anybody suggest any place for North Dakota, so it's great to have a suggestion for there. Yes, now this isn't Bonanzaville that would be anything to do with the TV show Bonanza, is it? No, (laughs) it has nothing to do with the Ponderosa or anything of that nature. So we don't get to play the music or... No, no. (laughs) Okay. Denise and I also went to go see the Winchester movie over the weekend. And we're going to discuss it a little bit at the end of the show, at the way end of the show. That way, if you don't want to have any spoilers, you can just not listen to the very end of the show. Before we get into all that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Abby, who spells her name with two B's and E and a Y. Hello, Abby, with two B's and E and a Y. Seanette. Hey, Seanette. Corrine with a C. Hi, Corrine with a C. Victoria. Hey, Victoria. Brian. Hi, Brian. Becky with a Y. Hey, Becky with a Y. D. Hello, D. Melissa. Hey, Melissa. And Daniel. Hello, Daniel. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Natasha Dehua, and I hope I said that right. Our listener Natasha had posted in the Spooktacular crew about purchasing a 200-year-old home in Ireland and finding toddler-sized shoes under the floorboards. The placing of objects like shoes under floorboards, in chimneys, around windows, and in the walls of structures has been a practice in Europe for centuries. The practice was so widespread that the Northampton Museum began maintaining a concealed shoe index, which has well over 2,000 reports. The practice was not done to store keepsakes, but were meant to serve as magical charms to protect the people who lived in the home from witches, demons, and ghosts, or they were meant to be charms to enhance fertility. Shoes were hidden in more than just homes. They've been found in public houses, churches, and Benedictine monasteries. The earliest reported find was in 1308, and the shoes were found behind the choir stalls in Winchester Cathedral. Half of the shoes found were sized for children like those in Natasha's house, and the majority have been well-worn and some even showed signs of repair. The practice seems to have ended during the 20th century. Finding well-worn toddler shoes under your floorboards certainly is odd. And we all advise Natasha, 
and we all advise Natasha to probably leave them lie. And now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 3rd in 1886, the Southern League of Colored Baseballists became the first Negro League. It was the first attempt to organize a Negro professional baseball league and had 10 teams that included the Charleston Fultons, the Georgia Champions, the Jacksonville Athletics, the Jacksonville Clippers, the Jacksonville Macedonias, the Memphis Eclipse, the Memphis Eurekas, the New Orleans Crescents, the Savannah Broads, and the Savannah Lafayettes. A call was put out in Southern newspapers to draw the captains of black baseball clubs to join the league. The first games were planned to start in May, but the season actually didn't start until June 7th. Newspapers reported on the games and gave favorable reviews. The league didn't last, and it was not until 1920 that an organized African-American league, which was the Negro National League, survived a full season. The second league formed in 1923 as the Eastern Colored League. In 1947, Jackie Robinson was signed to the Brooklyn Dodgers, which opened the doors for other African-American players and signaled the end of the Negro Leagues. On 12 acres in West Fargo, North Dakota, sits a treasure chest of historic buildings and artifacts known as Bonanzaville. This is a pioneer village and museum that is home to 43 historic buildings and over 400,000 artifacts. The historic park has been operated by the Cass County Historical Society since 1967. The buildings have been collected from various places and bring more than just historical stories with them. Several of these buildings are reputedly haunted. Enough hauntings go on here that the village actually hosts its own ghost tours at times. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Bonanzaville. Did you ever see the movie Fargo? I did. I just have this feeling that at some point during this podcast, we're going to say, you betcha. You betcha, Diane. Let's do it. (laughs) Well, why don't we talk about North Dakota since we've never talked about it on the show before. It became a state in 1889. The state was originally part of the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 and was part of the Minnesota and Nebraska territories until it broke off with South Dakota into the Dakota Territory in 1861. North and South Dakota had an ongoing rivalry to see which state would be admitted into the United States first, and North Dakota won. President Benjamin Harrison selected the bills at random as to which would be signed first. So I guess he didn't want any state to hate on him. So he's like, I'll just do it randomly, even though maybe he did favor North Dakota and he just said it was random. Possibly. Denise, you and I already know a little factoid about the term Dakota. Yes, we do. It's a great word. (laughs) It is the Sioux word for friend. And actually, our first dog was named Dakota for just that reason. 
Yes, she was a sweet, sweet pup. She was, and we liked calling our pup friend so much, we thought, well, why don't we call our other puppy friend as well? So Rafiki, for those of you who don't already know, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but it's Swahili for friends. So both of our dogs had the name friend. Yes, and so a lot of the kids I taught was wondering if our next dog was going to be named Amiko. That is true. Apparently, that was not the decision we made since we have wonderful little ferocious Tiana who is not necessarily a friend to anybody. (laughs) Friend would not have fit with her. No, No, Princess Diva. Although Princess Tiana is really sweet, if you're listening, little Tiana. Maybe if we took the R out of friend, fiend, that would fit a little (laughs) bit better. (laughs) What's the suit word for fiend? (laughs) North Dakota is known both as the Peace Garden State and Rough Rider State. A recent fun fact about the state for us that like weird kind of things... In 1999, a teenager discovered a dinosaur mummy on his uncle's ranch near Marmarth that turned out to be a 67-million-year-old duck-billed hadrosaur. It was so well-preserved that much of its bones, tendons, and ligaments remained enclosed in skin. So I thought that was kind of cool. Very cool. It almost sounds like something you would see on Scooby-Doo. Yeah, and I've never heard the term dinosaur mummy before, so I (laughs) liked that. That's why when you said that, I'm thinking more like Scooby-Doo episode, you know. The city of West Fargo in North Dakota was founded in 1926 and is in Cass County, which dates back to 1872 and was named for railroad executive George Washington Cass. Both West Fargo and Cass County are in the Red River Valley, and that is named for the river that forms the border of North Dakota and Minnesota, and that is, of course, the Red River. And unfortunately, that's all I have for the history of West Fargo. The city doesn't have anything. Even Wikipedia didn't have anything. So I don't know anything else about the founding of West Fargo. You should have put in ice fishing. Maybe that would have done it. Wood chipper. I don't know. Well, some might think that the village of Bonanzaville got its name because it's a bonanza of historical treasures. It actually is named for the large bonanza farms that once existed in the Red River Valley. These large bonanza farms existed between 1875 and the 1920s. They came about when the Northern Pacific Railroad sold large acreages to its investors to cover its debts. These farms produced large wheat crops and became highly profitable with the use of huge crews and new modernized machinery. Local managers ran the farms, which existed in Minnesota and North Dakota, until the land was exhausted and the land was sold off or rented out to smaller farmers. So I learned something because I'd never heard of Bonanza Farms before. I hadn't either. Bonanzaville consists of the Cass County Museum, the Pioneer Village, a rotating exhibit gallery, and a gift shop. Of course, everywhere's got to have a gift shop. But of course, it keeps some of us Americans happy. That's right. The Pioneer Village was established in 1967 and has 43 buildings on the property that were collected from various cities. So what we're going to do here is go through each one of these buildings and discuss a little bit about each one. First, we have the Arthur Town Hall, and this is from the town of Arthur in North Dakota and was built in 1890. The really neat thing about it is it features six stained glass windows that are from the Little Theater Company at NDSU. Not only were town meetings held here, but silent movies were screened during the 1920s. And what's really neat about this is, Denise, when we talk about some of these theaters that would screen silent movies, they'd have an organist there and play live music to go with the movie. Right. They did the same thing at this town hall. Community members would come in and play the piano to accompany the movies. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The blacksmith shop is from Tower City, North Dakota, and houses the original furnishings and tools used by the blacksmiths. It arrived in the Pioneer Village in 1970, 
And any of you that have been to an old pioneer village anywhere have probably seen a blacksmith shop in full working order with the blacksmith doing his thing and everything. I always loved watching that as a kid. I still love to watch it as an adult. It's amazing what they can do with some heat and metal. I love how much the metal glows when it turns that almost, it's almost like it's moving with the red Mm -hmm. and the yellows. It's really cool. I like it so much. As a matter of fact, I thought I would never find myself watching a show called Forged in Fire. It's a reality show about making weapons out of metal. (laughs) I love it. It's great. Oh, that's actually a really cool show. I've watched it with you. Yeah. Bandstands were popular in towns during the 19th century, and a bandstand from the town of Buffalo in North Dakota found a home here in Bonanzaville as well. Gilby, North Dakota featured the Bajerkley Drugstore. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but it looks like Bajerk. Yeah, so it could either be Bajerkley or Berkeley or just Jerkley. But anyway, it was a drugstore, which was built by a man named Judd A. Freeman in 1887. Ownership changed two years later to L.P. Bajerkley, or however you say it. I apologize for anybody who's a descendant for whom the store is named. He operated it until his death in 1942, and then his son took over and ran it until 1975. It closed at that time. This is like a typical drugstore at the time, so it featured a soda fountain. Oh, yes. I absolutely love these original soda fountains. They're very cool. We used to have one not too far from our very first apartment. Remember right down there on Broadway? Yes, and I used to go down to the 16th Street Mall in downtown Denver to Watson's, and it was a soda fountain, and I loved going down there. It just took me right back to the 50s, even though I didn't know anything about the 50s personally, and we haven't found a soda fountain here. We need to find one in Florida. Okay, I will look. The building is a recreation of the original, but all of the interior furnishings are original. The medications were donated by the North Dakota State University School of Pharmacy. There is a decorative structure that features an eagle standing on a globe with the word case stamped on it. This is the case eagle and it was placed on the former J.I. Case building on N.P. Avenue in Fargo. It was a logo created in 1865 and was named Old Abe. The symbol was taken from Company C of the 8th Wisconsin Regiment, which fought during the Civil War and the logo was their mascot. That's super cool. Yeah. The Cass Clay Creamery is a replica of a common 1920s small town creamery. Many of the furnishings are originally from the Kenmar, North Dakota Creamery, which was the last of its kind. The Cass County District Courthouse was actually the Hagemeister School in Berlin Township from 1930 to 1956. The furnishings, however, are from the Cass County Courthouse and are set up as they would have been in 1904. The bell outside is original to the courthouse as well. The Checkered Years House is from a Bonanza farm in Mapleton Township and was built in the early 1880s. The first person to live in the home was Mary Dodge Woodward. She kept a detailed daily diary that her granddaughter compiled into a book entitled The Checkered Years, and I do believe that at the gift shop that we mentioned before, they sell copies of that book. Mary wrote of how the farm started with only two buildings, but eventually had 27 buildings, causing many people to think it was a town rather than just a farm. She joked that if they built a saloon, they would be a town. So I guess, Denise, if you got a saloon, you're a town. I always thought it was, if you had a church, you were a town. Not with the miners. They were like, nope, need the saloon first. Yeah. Clearly, Mary never expected her diaries to become a book since she wrote, I have nobody to talk to except this diary, and here I can say what I please, for nobody but my children could ever read it. (laughs) 
I wonder if her granddaughter saw that part before she decided to publish. I don't know that. You could just imagine. I know. I could say whatever I want to because only my kids are ever going to read this and, and maybe not even them. And I'm not sure if she meant it like nobody but my children could ever read it because it wouldn't be in anybody else's hands but her children's or is she saying only my children could stand to read it? <laughs> I don't know. But either way, it has become its own book. Well, that's cool because she definitely spoke her mind and spoke the truth. I bet it's probably pretty good. Dawson Hall was built to be used for demonstrations and programs during the annual Pioneer Day celebration. It is named for Jim Dawson, who donated much of the building's contents. The Dobrint School was built in 1895 and was originally located in Mapleton Township. The school was named for John Dobrintz, a farmer who lived near the school. Thirteen of his children attended the school, which was a one-room schoolhouse that taught children from grades 1 through grades 8. Grade level was decided on completion of books rather than age. Some students were even older than the teacher. I didn't know that much about one-room schoolhouses. I mean, I watched Little House on the Prairie, and I've been to historical buildings that are one-room schoolhouses, but I always wondered, how did you teach all of those different grades in one classroom? Apparently, it was pretty easy if they're just all working out of different books, and that's how you'd figure out they're ready to move on because they're done with the books at whatever level. And I'd never thought about the fact that there could be some students that would be older than the teacher. Well, that would make sense because prior to schools being really popular, a lot of the adults were illiterate and stuff. They were just good at their trade, but they might not be able to read. And if you want to have a school name for you, live next to it and have a bunch of children go there. Yes, so 13 is my lucky number, but 13 (laughs) children would be Diane's personal nightmare. Yeah, that would be very unlucky to me. (laughs) The Eagle Air Museum has a collection of over a dozen aircraft and related artifacts. One of the aircraft is the Douglas C-47 that was used in World War II during the D-Day invasion. The Emden Depot was built by the Northern Pacific Railroad in 1900 in Emden, North Dakota. Telegraph services were also offered at the depot. The Eugene Dahl Car Museum houses a collection of over 60 vehicles from the early years of automobiles to more modern vehicles. And many of them were donated by Eugene Dahl and Lester Melrose, who purchased a large collection of automobiles from the Paul Hemp Automobile Museum in Rochester, Minnesota. The first permanent house in the Fargo area was built by immigrants in 1869 near 4th Street and 2nd Avenue South. The house was built from logs cemented together by a mixture of cement and sand. That first house is now here and known as the Fargo First Home. It not only served as a residence, it also was used as a hotel and jail. <laughs> it's like, so we can we can meet all the needs of the town. <laughs> we can keep our travelers nice and warm and give them a hot meal, or we can keep our criminals locked up and give them a hot meal. Well, it makes you wonder, did they decide, what are we going to serve as this evening? Is the person who is staying here here willingly or not willingly. (laughs) Tonight, we're a hotel because you are a paying customer. Or if you've been arrested, we're a jail tonight. So the chains on the bed had a whole different meaning back then than (laughs) they might today, right? Oh, boy. Well, then it would be a different kind of hotel, which we'll be talking about later. The Fornes Log Cabin is actually a reproduction of a typical log cabin of the area and is named for the man who built it on the grounds of the Pioneer Village, Palmer Fornes. There's a cast iron stove in it that was used more for heating than cooking. And there are several of the homes that have these cast iron stoves, and that's what they were used a lot for was heating. And all I could think of is nowadays they tell you don't ever use your oven as a heater. 
cast iron it doesn't fall over very easy and it doesn't have gas and other wires and stuff that can catch fires. I guess that's true because if you're thinking about cast iron, nothing's burning through that or anything like that. So and if you keep the door closed, you're probably good. The Fernberg store was built in the late 1800s by Christian Fernberg near the train stop at Osgood, North Dakota. Fernberg was a young boy when he moved to the Dakota Territory in 1871, and he started his life selling goods by peddling them to people in the area. He opened the general store after borrowing $50 from his sister-in-law. The store remained in business for 75 years and closed in 1953, so he must have been pretty good at peddling because that's a long time to be in business. Yes, from just a, well, it was probably a larger Yeah, I'm sure $50. Then, but still, that's mm. not huge. The Haverstad cabin was built by a group of Finnish settlers in 1874 and was moved from Kindred, North Dakota. It is made from oak logs and has two levels. The second level was used only for sleeping. The Hagen House was built by Martin Hagen in 1897 near Horace, North Dakota. There was no electricity or indoor plumbing for the four generations that lived in the house. Can you imagine four generations that lived in the house with no electricity or indoor plumbing? No, well, we often say that, like, sometimes I get whiny about not having something now, and you think back in the day, they had nothing for years and years. Oh, I remember there was that one evening we lost power for three hours, and then, of course, during Hurricane Irma, we lost power for, I don't know, about 12 hours or so, and that that's bad enough. I can't imagine never having it in the house. We are spoiled. In just a bit. The harness shop was used for harness and horseshoe repair and was brought from Addison, North Dakota. The horse-drawn building is a museum featuring a collection of horse-drawn vehicles and equipment that included buggies, sleighs, farm wagons, drays, and a milk wagon. The Land Office Bank is a replica of a Cogswell, North Dakota building that served as a place for new land seekers to file their plots and receive titles to their property. The Law Enforcement Museum has displays donated by the Fargo Auxiliary Police Association. As we go along here, they pretty much have it all covered in this village. The Mayer House was built by John and Dora Mayer in 1896 in Moorhead, Minnesota. The house started out with two rooms, and later a lean-to was added that added two more rooms. Electricity was installed in 1940. Inside the house, there's a collection of historic medical devices. I don't know how many of them look like torture devices, but that would be kind of interesting to look at. I know some of them are dental, and any dental device to me is torturous, so... Yeah, well, any of those older medical devices look more like things to do harm rather than to help. The worst ones I've seen is at the Pirate Museum in St. Augustine. Those are awful. Oh my God, that case is full of things that I'm like, oh no, I would rather die. The Martinson Cabin was the former home of the North Dakota poet and labor organizer, Henry D. Martinson. Before Martinson bought it as his home, it was a barn. Many of the furnishings that you'll find inside had belonged to Martinson. He was named Poet Laureate of North Dakota in 1967. The Melro Tractor Building houses a display on the history of American agricultural innovation. Two of the earliest steam engines built by J.I. Case are in this building. The Moham Agricultural Building also houses farm machinery, and the very first Steiger tractor is housed here. The Pioneer Fire Company was built by area firefighters as a replica of an 1890 station. The original horse-drawn wagons of the Fargo Fire Department are here, and the upstairs is furnished how the living quarters would have appeared at that time. The Railroad Museum houses an 1883 Northern Pacific steam locomotive, caboose, Russell snowplow, and a 1930 80-passenger coach. 
The steam locomotive was known as number 684. Burbanks, the general foreman who worked at getting number 684 restored, summed up the importance of the American Standard class of steam engine by saying, The American Standard history from 1837 to the late 1880s is full of deeds of conquest over wilderness and trackless waste. The bitter cold and mountainous snows and battles against almost insurmountable obstacles which they fought to settle the frontiers of the nation. No other single item has done more to make our country great than the standard. By uniting vast territories into one nation and converting gloomy, untrodden forests, dismal swamps, and pathless prairies into prosperous states and fertile farms. I think that pretty much says it all about the railroad. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's funny how all of a sudden Purple Mountain's majesty become all these like dismal swamps. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on, on the perspective, I guess. Huh? Gloomy, untrodden forests, dismal swamps, and pathless prairies. <laughs> exactly. The Telephone Museum used to be a hardware store in Tower City, North Dakota. The Telephone Pioneers of America converted it into a museum, and it features displays of 20th century receivers, switching equipment, and line insulators, which were made of glass. And for the youngsters listening to this episode, which would include... The millennials. Which would include anybody younger than us, pretty much. <laughs> there was a time before there was direct dial. Yeah, before direct dial, the calls actually had to be connected by phone operators. And many of those slept right in the office. And if anybody wants to know what that looks like, if you're ever at Epcot at Walt Disney World, you can ride Spaceship Earth and it shows them lines coming in and they're, they're plugging it into the switchboard. It's pretty cool. The Hunter Times building houses machinery from newspaper printing history that includes a strip casting machine, hand-operated press, flatbed press, and linotype machine. The Hunter Times was originally published in Hunter, North Dakota and ran until the 1940s. But there was a time before that, and the first paper that was printed in Hunter in the 1890s was known as The Eye. And then in the 1920s, the paper was known as The Hunter Herald. The building burned in the 1930s and was rebuilt and renamed as The Hunter Times. The Catherine Depot Spud Valley Railroad Club is a building that houses the Spud Valley Model Railroad Club, which operates a model railroad inside. So it makes sense that it was called that. The Thu Brink Store is a general store from Horace, North Dakota, that was built in 1896 by H.H. Thu and his father-in-law, C.O. Brink. At the time, it was the largest store in North Dakota. The store supplied flour, salt pork, molasses, nails, lumber, farm machinery, Lace and even lingerie. Because that's what you always need to get when you go to buy your pork chops. I know. Let me get some salt pork and some lumber. And uh, how about that little number over there? <laughs> you have to wonder, like lingerie at that time, what exactly was that? Some bloomers? I don't know. The store also featured a post office that was run by the Thu family for 56 years. This is a two-story building with a basement and warehouse. The second floor was used for school plays, speakers, and for living quarters, and it was the town's auditorium until 1937. One of my favorite features here, there was a six-foot candy counter to tempt the children, which included the Thu children. Their father was strict about them taking any candy for themselves, and one day, H.H. followed one of his daughters to the depot, where he turned her upside down in front of everybody and shook the candy out of her pockets. Oh, poor thing. Oh, my God. Well, I bet she never took any candy again. Can you imagine your, your own daughter was the shoplifter? But she wanted the sweets that he wouldn't let her have. It would be really hard to resist if I was 
living somewhere where there was like candy just sitting there, yeah, I'd have a hard time too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not good that she stole it, but still, that's a pretty big temptation for a little girl. The train's red elevator was originally built as a granary in the early 1900s near Kindred, North Dakota, by Emmon Transred and his son Henry. Emmon Transred's house is also here, and this was constructed between the late 1860s and 1871. The family lived there for seven years until they moved into a bigger home. The smaller house then became a bunkhouse for the hired men during the summer and eventually was used for storage. Emmons' grandson restored the house and gave it to Bonanzaville in 2009. The You Are Next barbershop was built in 1900 and was located near Buffalo, North Dakota. The objects and furnishings inside are original to the shop. The Wheatland Town Hall and Jail was built in 1905 for Wheatland Township, North Dakota. The building housed two constables, a justice of the peace, and lawbreakers. There are two cells that featured a cot, a chair, and a blanket. The hall also has its original safe with a hole blown in its side. So apparently it was robbed at some time? I'm guessing. Well, there are some haunted buildings on this property. There are three of them, and we're going to talk about those now. And apparently a few years ago, Bonanzaville realized, hey, there are people who enjoy doing these things called ghost tours. So what would be a really cool thing we could do during October? Let's host some ghost tours. And I think they only did it for a week the first time. And people were like, you've got to do more of them because they only offered 12 spots too. So that sold out. Boom. The next year they did it, I think, for three weeks. And then last year they did it for every week in October, including Halloween night. So I think they figured out, wow, this is really popular. They still limit it to just 12 to 13 people in a group because it's hard to get in and out of some of these buildings. If that's something you're interested in doing, make sure you book it early. The first haunted property we're going to talk about is the Houston House. This was built in 1881 by David Houston and was originally on a bonanza farm in Hunter, North Dakota. Houston was a Scottish immigrant, farmer, poet, and he invented the roll film camera. For those of you who know a little bit about photography and its history, you're probably going... What? What are you talking about? You probably have not heard Houston's name in connection with this invention because Kodak Eastman never gave him the credit he deserved. And even Thomas Edison is credited with creating the moving camera when he actually was building off of Houston's original invention. And Houston actually called his first device Kodak. But George Eastman claimed that he came up with the name out of thin air. Some people say that David Houston was a lazy guy and he was happy to sell his inventions and ideas and names and everything to George Eastman and didn't really care about production. He didn't want to go into it and make his own stuff. But because of that, he really got cheated out of some stuff. George Eastman went on to build a multi-million dollar empire and David Houston didn't get much from that and definitely didn't at least get the credit that he should have been given. I was looking at the history of this house and I went, wait a minute, this guy's like, pretty big when you're talking about basically he's what got Kodak and cameras and everything really started there with something that people could actually take themselves and take pictures. That is one thing we can always use as a cautionary thing because so many people who had great ideas without realizing what they had sold it off to somebody and didn't, didn't keep any of their rights to it. And then bam, they were just left in the dust. So maybe, George Eastman, that's why digital cameras and the whole fact that we don't need film and these other cameras anymore. Maybe that's why that happened. So that's the Karma. Curse, curse of Houston. The cur- <laughs> we just made up our own curse. Cool. 
The house itself features maple floors, cherry and oak wainscoting, walnut stairs, and large bay windows. The decor features fine lace curtains, Victorian in style, an Art Deco mahogany bookshelf towering above parlor chairs, a pump organ, and a medieval hunting tapestry. Houston installed a new type of heating system in the basement, a hot air furnace, and then he put in metal conduits and air registers that brought the heat into the rooms. There was a bathroom as well, which was uncommon at the time. This house is reputedly haunted. Staff have claimed to hear the disembodied voices and laughter of children inside the house when no kids are in the house. Brenda Warren is Bonanzaville's executive director, and she said, In the upstairs southeast bedroom of the Houston house, there's always an indentation in the pillow, and I always fluff it back up. When I come back to check on things, there's always the same indentation in that pillow. I've never really believed in the paranormal. However, this keeps happening over and over again, so it makes me wonder if maybe there might be something there. Houston died of a brain hemorrhage in this room. David Houston and his wife Annie were both spiritualists, and they had one room set aside for seances. Yeah, so you'd be wondering, where is the voices and laughter of children coming from? Because no kids had died in the home or anything. And I don't believe that David or his wife had any children. Now, if that laughter sounds a little bit like parrots, Annie did have a lot of parrots. So you'd be like, well, how in the world are there, is there some children ghost activity going on here? But if they were holding seances, it makes you wonder if they didn't invite something into the home, maybe? Very possibly. And since we don't necessarily know what exactly children ghosts are, it may not be children. David Houston could be haunting this location because not only did he die in a really horrible way, he'd been stuck in a blizzard, and that's what caused some of the brain hemorrhaging. He also was very depressed in his life, especially over what had happened with the camera stuff, and he just didn't feel like he'd reached the level of success that he should have. And his wife, Annie, was very outgoing, and he didn't like to go out and do things, and so she wasn't home much. And they were married to each other, but very lonely people, if that kind of helps you to understand what kind of relationship they had. The Brass Rail Saloon and Hotel was built in 1889 in Page, North Dakota. It moved to Bonanzaville in 1971. Now, originally, there were nine rooms in the hotel and featured entertainment and fine dining, but even though it was called the Brass Rail Saloon, there was no alcohol. North Dakota entered the Union as a dry state, and so no alcohol was served until Prohibition was repealed in 1933. A room could be rented for 50 cents, with the elegant bridal suite going for 75 cents a night. There was no indoor plumbing. The furnishings are not original, but date to the early 1900s. Some of the entertainment available at the saloon and hotel came in the form of a brothel. So many people say that they think this was more than just a hotel, that it was a brothel which makes a lot of sense since it was connected to a saloon. This tavern is near the Houston house and is apparently haunted as well. Some paranormal investigators wonder if it's their proximity to each other that's causing the hauntings to be going on between these two places. Brenda Warren's daughter, Missy, heads up special events at Bonanzaville. She once heard a loud noise inside the Brass Rail Saloon and said of it, there's something in the saloon and everything that has been heard has come from the upstairs where it was most likely once a brothel. Warren herself has had an experience in the saloon. She was locking up by herself one night and says of the event, I kind of got an eerie feeling. There's an upstairs, the hotel part of the brass rail. So I locked up downstairs and as I was reaching for the door to go upstairs, something hit the floor very, very hard. I mean, shook the floor it hit so hard. But the crazy thing is, 
there were renovations going on at that time and there was nothing up there. It was pretty much gutted. Nothing that could have fallen off of a wall onto the floor or something. I didn't see anything, but I didn't stick around either. And I don't blame her. If I heard a big bang that shook the floor, I'd be out of there too. No kidding. The South Pleasant Church arrived in Bonanzaville in 2015 and was built over 125 years ago. The church is originally from Christine, North Dakota, and was moved to replace the former church in Bonanzaville, St. John's Lutheran Church, because it burned down. This is another one of the haunted locations in the village. In 2016, a crew from Horsley Specialties came in to clean up the steeple and restore it when they experienced what they described as haunting activity. Raul Turobayedas Jr. and his workers had just climbed the stairs to the steeple tower when they heard what they thought was someone walking around on the wooden floor beneath them. Access to the church was limited, so Raul went downstairs to chase the person out. He didn't see anyone, so he called out. There was no response. Then, to his astonishment, he saw a set of footprints in the dust made by bare feet. The footprints led in different directions. Some went up to the altar, and others led away. All of his crew were in boots, and he found no one else in the building. The crew went back to work, figuring that someone had come in at some other time and that they just hadn't noticed the footprints earlier. Then one of the men saw a small shadow movement. He told Raoul and said that he thought the shadow was about the size of a seven-year-old child. He claimed that the shadow ran past him and around the corner of the doorway. He followed it around the corner, and the shadow had disappeared. Then he saw another set of barefoot prints that were small, like a child's, in the corner of the pews where he thought the shadow had crossed. The crew decided that they would not stay to work into the night. Raul said, I told my supervisor, I'm out of here by 5 p.m. since it starts getting dark then. We've worked on many old buildings, many, but this has never happened before. It's a little creepy. I don't blame them either. If you have a child walking around leaving footprints in the dust. Yeah, that would be more than a little creepy, I think. The crew later claimed to see a large, unplugged, 20-gallon shop vacuum move on its own across roughly four feet of carpeted entryway. And if you're talking a 20-gallon shop vacuum, those don't move very easily, certainly not on their own, and a carpeted entryway, so it's not like it just kind of glided across the floor. It's a little tough to go across carpet. Former members of the church were asked about hauntings, but nobody gave any further information. There had been a cemetery next to the church at its original location, so is this a little spirit that followed the church from the cemetery? Who knows? Bonanzaville is like a time capsule of another time that keeps history alive for those who visit. Are some of the buildings that were brought here still serving as home to some former residents who no longer are living? Is Bonanzaville haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a cool place to check out. Obviously, since this is in North Dakota, it's only really open during the summer months to go see it. Because as I was looking at some of the newspaper articles about these hauntings, I glanced up at the top and saw that there was a warning about minus 20 to minus 30 degrees tonight. So (laughs) not a place I would ever want to (laughs) live. No, thank you. I know a lot of people were flocking there looking for oil jobs because there was a ton of jobs in the oil industry, but oh no, no, that kind of temperature, not working for me. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Well, what we'll do is go ahead and share some of our reviews, and then we will talk about the Winchester movie for just a moment. We have two of them from the UK. First one, brilliant five stars, Mish3GH. 
I love Denise and Diane. This podcast is great. I get to listen to the history of places around the world, plus the ghost side of the locations as well. They do a really great job and are very informative. I love it. Can't wait for more. A brilliant podcast. And the website is great too. Good luck, girls, and keep going. Well, thank you. And Alex Stone 87 love your podcast five stars. I've just discovered your podcast because of the Christmas message you did on the Twisted Philly podcast, and I'm loving it. Keep up the good work. Well, I'm glad that we did that for Dina then. That was very cool. So thanks for coming over from Dina's podcast. And then here in America, we have Kim Sugar 812, a dynamic duo, five stars. I feel like we should say kapow, like Batman and Robin. Kapow. I finally have time to write a review. I've been a faithful listener for over a year, and this podcast still maintains its originality, charm, humor, and captures my attention regularly. Diane and Denise are an awesome team. I feel like I'm listening to good friends sharing facts and mysterious stories around a campfire. These two really make my morning as I head into work. Well, we're so glad we do that. And Kim is an awesome artist. Yes, she is. I love her stuff. She does sugar skulls and all kinds of things. She does have an Etsy shop. There's nothing up there right now. So are you taking a break right now? That sounds like a scolding from your Auntie Diane. (laughs) (laughs) You can find her at Kimberly Sugar Art. I believe that's what she is on Instagram as well. So um, check that out. All right, Denise, what did you think of the Winchester movie? I think that my heart was still beating pretty hard even after we left. (laughs) It had a lot of jump scares in it. So it was definitely that. When my folks came over, they said, hey, we want to go see the Winchester movie on Sunday afternoon. Want to come with us? We're like, oh, well, yeah, absolutely, because we wanted to see it too. And then I went, mom, you do realize it's a scary movie, right? So I could hear her every so often during the movie kind of doing a little (laughs) when there'd be that jump scare, because I think she was not really expecting it to be that way. I knew that it was going to be kind of like a horror movie, but I didn't think it was going to be like that jumpy. I didn't think it would be quite that scary, at least for me. Well, we both really enjoyed it. Obviously, it's got to be great. It's got Helen Mirren in it. And then it has the Winchester Mystery House. Since we are a haunted history podcast and we've done, we've actually done two episodes on the Winchester Mystery House, we thought, well, we should at least address how accurate was the movie. There are going to be people who go in there and think, well, is this really what happened with it? As we all know, when it comes to the Winchester Mansion, the term mystery covers the bases for not only the house, but for Sarah Winchester as well. Nobody knows why she built the house the way she did. So if anybody tells you this is why she did it, they don't know. Now, I thought that the movie gave a really cool premise because some of the theories that are out there, there are people who say that she was worried about spirits trying to get her from people who had been killed by Winchester rifles and that this seer or medium had told her that she needed to build this house and keep building on it, never stop building in order to keep the spirits at bay. And I've heard people say, well, it's confusing and you get lost in it because that was to confuse and get the evil spirits lost, but it also was a comfortable home for the good spirits. Evil spirits and good spirits, what exactly gives you an idea that they're going to get confused and lost in a house that, first of all, I thought spirits could just pass through walls anyway, so I don't think a wall's going to trip them up. But what makes it that an evil spirit's going to get lost and a good spirit's going to feel comfortable? I think it would just work that whatever way for any spirit. So I don't honestly believe that that's what she was doing here. There's a part in the movie that shows that the stairs that are like two inches high that we talked about on the episode, that's more like a ramp and it kind of goes around. And I really do believe that she had that built because she had arthritis and it was easier for her to get upstairs that way. Oh, that would make sense. 
There's also the theory that she was so devastated by the death of her husband and her child that this was just kind of busy work for her, something for her to do to keep her mind off of their deaths. So that could be a possibility. There are people who thought she was crazy and she had a ton of money. So why not just spend a bunch of money building this house in all different directions? There are people who think that it's very disorganized because she had different contractors, different ideas. And so when you see stairs that go to nowhere or a door that opens up to nothing, it wasn't necessarily that it was actually meant to be that way, but it got built that way because there was confusion between builders and contractors and people not knowing what the right hand was doing from the left hand, that kind of thing. So that could be a possibility. There are other people who think that she was contacting spirits stirring seances in the middle of the night, that the bell, which rings in the movie at midnight, it actually did do that. So that was something that was true to the actual story, that she would go into her seance room and get these detailed plans from spirits who were telling her how to build the house and that this was the house that spirits built. And that's why they say that. Did she actually do that? Nowhere does Sarah Winchester write, this is what I was doing in my house and this is why I built it this way. So again, we don't know. Now, the premise that they put in the movie, I really liked, and it was fun. I just thought from what you just said, like, she didn't write it down. Of course, she could have done that just to keep us all guessing for decades to come. And since I think she is still in the home as a ghost, she's probably loving that everybody's going, what in the world's going on here? Yeah, because since she didn't write down any reasoning, no journaling, nothing, didn't tell anybody what she was doing, maybe it was just a big thing to keep us all guessing for the rest of our lives. And it's working, right? It is. In the movie, the premise is that she was building these rooms for the different spirits that were coming that were replicas of the actual rooms that they had died in. And so they would stay in these rooms and then they would lock them in the room by putting a board across the door and nailing in 13 nails to hold them in there. And then once they would resolve whatever their issue was, they would dismantle the room and then rebuild something else. So I thought that was a really fun premise, but it was it's just total fiction. I mean, that's definitely not what she was doing. Well, I like that the 13 nails were not for evil. It was because 13 is a divine number. That's right, that she had said that. So Denise was like, yes, 13 is divine. There's a doctor who comes in the movie to be a psychiatrist. He's supposed to find her crazy for the Winchester Repeating Arms Company so that they can pull the company out from underneath her. He never existed. Maybe they asked a psychiatrist to do that. But again, that's not in historical fact. So we don't know. That's just something that's made up. Her niece did live with her and did help her run uh, kind of the household. And she, after Sarah Winchester's death, she took care of the house and all of the business end of things and stuff like that. So she was very loyal to her aunt. So she was true. The house was extraordinary. I don't know how much of it was filmed in the actual house. But I think there there had to have been parts of it that were, or at least they built it to look like it. And it just extraordinary. It just really makes me want to go see that house really bad. Yeah, I definitely want to go visit it someday. The earthquake does hit in the movie. Of course, they make it so that it's something that the spirits have actually done. But that was actually the earthquake of 1910 that did destroy part of the house. It was originally... Parts of it were seven stories tall, and she took the top three stories off after that because she was trapped in a room. In the movie, she's trapped, but uh, it wasn't for that the reason the movie says, but she was trapped in her room, and they had to use a crowbar to get her out. And after that, she was like, take down those top three floors. It's too dangerous. And she actually lived on a boathouse for a while and wasn't real comfortable in the home. But as we all know, she eventually did go back there because that is where she died. 
And then, of course, it uh, kept up the story of that they built 24-7. You can hear them when they're sleeping at night. The hammers are going and stuff like that. I can't imagine sleeping while there's construction going on around you. So it has some factual stuff, a lot of it's fiction, but we thought it was a lot of fun. So we would recommend people to go see it. Yeah, I enjoyed it even even though it made me jump a lot. Yeah, and if you like jump scares, you'll definitely, definitely enjoy it. We want to thank you all for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Lindsay May, Brian Jones, and Kelly Rang. Thanks. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.